we're working on memory disorders that would involve um, putting an electrode or a series of electrodes into the hippocampus for a stimulation pattern that would help us restore memory. And there is a resistance because a person who says, oh, I'm just starting to get this disease, it's not severe enough to warrant brain surgery. And by the time they might consider that it's time that they're ready to do it, uh, there's always a possibility it's too late. Hello and welcome to Culturescape, the show that interviews the geek creators and influencers that built our nerd culture. What happens when science fiction becomes science fact? Today I have a fascinating guest, an acclaimed neuroscientist, a former DARPA researcher, Dr. Robert Hampson, who is here to talk about us on the incredible advancements in the world of cyborgs and bionics. He's the author of a new science fiction book on the topic, The Moon and the Desert, published by Bain Books. Hello, Robert. Welcome to the show. Oh, hi. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, I, I'm super excited to have you here today because the cyborgs, bionics, that's like a, it's like a baseline sci-fi nerds uh, wet oh, dream. Yeah, so uh, tell us a little bit about your background and how you went from, how you became a neuroscientist, how you went from that to becoming an author. So I... Uh, Okay, I usually start off by saying, hey, I'm old enough that I watched The Six Million Dollar Man on TV as a young man. And I was in high school when the show aired, uh, when it came on, and I was in college when it ended. It is, it's been 50 years since the show uh, came on, and we did not realize it, but the the book released the same day, 50 years after the very first airing of The Six Million Dollar Man. I loved that show. And uh, frankly, I wanted to be Rudy Wells. I wanted to be the doctor that uh, created the bionics and did all of this really neat sci-fi work. Went off to graduate school, and I was uh, zeroing in on a prosthetics research lab. And much to my chagrin, it wasn't about bionics at all. I mean, bionics didn't exist. And the prosthetics research at the time, and we're talking late 1970s, was a, uh, a coming up with new alloys, new materials for uh, joint replacement and for uh, the pins and plates and screws that are used by orthopedics. So the field of bionics didn't really exist. I went into physiology, uh, not into medicine, and was fascinated, became fascinated by a structure called the hippocampus. The hippocampus is, is, is in here, uh, about an inch in from uh, the skull on the temporal side. It's in the temporal lobe. And the hippocampus is an area that is involved with memory, particularly making new memory and making, taking something from a short memory, short-term memory to a long-term storage. And I became fascinated with that. As the research continued, we started looking at, well, how do you fix a damaged hippocampus? And the question of how you fix a damaged hippocampus led us to DARPA and several DARPA programs in which they were interested in the same question because you, a person has Alzheimer's disease, that's one thing. But what about a stroke? What about a head injury? What about um, a number of other uh, disorders that can cause damage? And DARPA looking at the question of what do you do with someone who has a head injury um, and has a, has a memory problem, they wanted to know, well, what do you do about it? So we've started looking at a number of different aspects of how does the hippocampus function? How does memory function? What does the brain do in terms of, is it a computer that comes up with a code, with a map, with an address? And 
that took us into the idea of, hey, if we can detect a code, can we affect it? Can we tell when it gets weak, when it's going, there's going to be an error? And that led to development and design for a device that would improve memory in Alzheimer's disease and other uh, memory-damaging disorders. So it was about 2019, and I was at a meeting with DARPA Project, and we, all of us who were working on the various neuro-associated projects had our meeting together. This is a number of DARPA's different projects, and that included one called Revolutionizing Prosthetics. And Revolutionizing Prosthetics is the group that created the real bionics. And some of their successes have been um, a fully brain-controlled robotic arm and a wearable prosthetic that's controlled by the nerve impulses in the upper arm. So actually, there is a man who has a bionic arm and hand, and he has a titanium rod uh, fused to the bone in the upper arm and mounted to that as a magnetic bearing, and then there's an arm, and the wrist can flex, and the hand and the fingers can flex, and it's all controlled by his nerves. And I looked around this meeting, and I said it was 2019, thereabouts, and I realized this is the science of bionics that I always wanted to be part of. Oh, it's so exciting. I mean, the advancements we've seen in, in the world of bionics, even prosthetics, just in the like, just really, and it's kind of sad, but it is true, you know, the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, that was a big spurring on a lot of this, but it's just incredible. I remember probably, oh, when in 12... Years ago, probably when there was the new story about the monkey, that they were able to get the the monkey. That's right, and the bionic hand to work. Right, and it was it, it was jaw dropping for me because that was the moment. Like, well, you know, this is when science fiction becomes real. It, it it just blew my mind. Still does. And this is weird because I know the laboratory. I know the people. I've worked with them, uh, the ones who came up with this, and I saw some of the very early demonstrations. And they were part of some DARPA projects in the uh, in the 2000s, uh, mid to yeah mid 2000s. That I was at some of those meetings as well. Fascinating work, and it does grow out of some of the things that we worked on. And it's just as I said, the field grew, and I found myself in it without ever, you know, without ever having entered the field of bionics. The stuff with your brain research is interesting, too. Uh, my grandpa, who's dealing with a lot of um, Alzheimer's dementia issues, especially that exacerbated by uh, COVID. And it's interesting. It doesn't take a lot for your brain to have some dysfunction where it kind of throws all your systems off. It doesn't really take that much damage to cause problems. So it's interesting to me that your research covers that. Uh, maybe take us through how did you go from neuroscientist to sci-fi author that's kind it's a little different it is a little different um one of the things i like to say is that you know we're turning sci-fi into science uh, i was clearly influenced by i love science fiction i mean i read asimov and clark uh and heinlein i read niven and purnell and Bova and all of these greats. I mean, I think I, I think I survived college and grad school on Niven and Purnell. Uh, and, and so these were, it was always an interest to me. And I had joined a couple of online communities. And uh, yes, it goes back to the original Usenet and my uh, uh, time with ALL and CompuServe and all of the old geeky things like that. But I had, I had come across the Bain Books uh, website, Bain's Bar, and started talking with several authors. And every once in a while, an author will post in the, in the um, BBS, the, the, um, uh, chat groups, they would say, hey, I'm trying to figure out how to use something in a story. And it could be, you know, uh, is a character going to make a drug? Is a character going to uh, 
create a poison or use a poison or need to figure out how they're going to overcome some disease. And a lot of people in the groups by this point knew a little bit about what I did. I mean, I didn't hide it. Uh, it was right in my signature line. I called myself the speaker to lab animals. And the, just to say, yeah, I work with, I work in a laboratory and I, and I do this kind of stuff. And so questions would be asked and I would be able to answer them. And there's a few amusing cases where a person would say to me on a private message, hey, um, the author asked, and I know that's your expertise, why didn't you answer them? And my usual response was, what makes you think I didn't answer them? So I started off by talking with authors about science and helping with uh, coming up with different concepts and uh, things that would work for a story. And a lot of this involved my actually owe to John Ringo, who invited me to come to a couple of conventions. Uh, I had been corresponding with him. He said, hey, if you like this stuff, you ought to come to... Uh, the LibertyCon convention. And so I went to LibertyCon and met a number of people. And through this, I met some of the folks at Bain's, uh, at Bain Books. And starting around 2011, I had an invitation to, hey, would you like to write some science articles for us where you actually explain science? And I go, well, that's great because it fits in with the kind of stuff I do. I teach, I do research, uh, I write lots and lots of papers and lots and lots of grants, but I've always wanted to make sure that what I wrote could be understandable by the general public. So I worked pretty hard on it. So since 2011, I've written quite a few science articles, uh, nonfiction articles that are just explaining science. And I had an editor say to me one day, so when are you going to send us a story? And I said, well, you know, I don't really write fiction. I've always wanted to write fiction, but I've never finished anything. And he said, well, what have you got? I outlined to him, what if I were to take the $6 million man and update it? And he said, send me an outline. And I sent him an outline, and then he shared it with the publisher, and I got back. Yeah, okay, here's a couple changes. Start writing. And so I've, I've had some great opportunities, but it, it came about because I've always loved science fiction. I've always been inspired uh, in my science by can we do the things that science fiction predicted, and then, you know, writing science for the audience that also would be reading science fiction. Hey, I got a story. Let me try and tell it. I, for this project, <clears throat> doing my research, you did write an essay about some of the topics that you go through in the book. One of the things that I noticed uh, is that there is an interesting relationship. The book is basically a story. It's a, uh, it's a story about, and you can tell me where I'm wrong. It's about a guy who's in a space program. He gets injured. Kind of like the six million dollar man, military guy. He gets bionics, and so it's kind of it. It is in this world of where the military meets the space program, uh, meets uh, cybernetics, bionics, and that uh, of what from what I've heard from you is actually kind of of the real world. That there is this this interconnection between what happened this the space program, what happens the military, and these advancements we are seeing. How exactly did that come about? How does it work and i'm you probably know some of the people that work in these very fields so you probably have a better understanding of this issue than uh, most of us neophytes well actually it starts uh with a fellow by the name of jack Steele. uh jack Steele was an army doctor and uh after he returned from uh from the korean war he started working with the air force research labs and Jack Steele was the guy who came up with the term bionics. Uh, it is a blend of bionic, uh, of biology or biological and electronic. And he had the idea that we would look at biology 
and use that to figure out a way to engineer things to be more efficient, more power efficient, more flexible, more durable. And his ex initial example was when a satellite has to unfold solar panels, is it possible to learn from how flowers unfold their petals, uh, unfold their, their bloom in the sun? Is it possible to use any of those principles in terms of making the solar panels responsive to sunlight and you know how do you pack them tight for launch and then have them expand and what's interesting is this was in the late 1950s and early 1960s when all of that had yet to come about but he was also working with a group at the, the air force lab that was looking at the concept of the cybernetic organism, the cyborg, or the human that's been augmented with biological electronic parts. And they loved the bionic concept. And so the two concepts of bionics and cybernetic organisms or cybernetics melded together. So in reality, this has been an Air Force concept all along. Uh, a lot of what we think of in terms of the bionics and the prosthetics grew out of the first out of the folks in the Air Force who were looking at what is the best way for a human to survive and function in space, because that's what this laboratory was doing. That was the whole purpose of the cyborg concept was they thought the best way for a human to survive and to function in space was to be augmented. And so the space program and the military have been part of bionics from the very beginning. But I also wanted to add a number of different things. In uh, The Six Million Dollar Man originally came from a book uh, by Martin Caden, who is himself an aerospace engineer and had worked with this, this group of the Air Force Labs. And he wrote the book Cyborg, came out in 1972, and that was the basis for The Six Million Dollar Man. In his book, Steve Austin, his character, was not a volunteer. He was a military man, he was an astronaut, and he was essentially rebuilt and healed for the good of the country. He became a secret agent, Game a spy, and in some interpretations of what was going on the events of the book and the three sequels that followed it, he was also an assassin. Well, that's not how uh, the research program actually goes. If you look at the history of bionics, these are mostly civilians, and they are volunteers, and the overriding factor is they just want to go back to their life. Uh, so uh, the the fact that you've already said uh, the war in Iraq and Afghanistan has left society and left the military with uh, a number of amputees and um, uh, paralysis victims and other injuries that gain benefit from augmentation or advanced prosthetics. And if you ask any one of those people, the reason why they go through and they volunteer and they work as hard as they, as they do in these programs, is they just want to go back to work. They just want to go back to their life. And so that's I wanted to capture that in the book as well. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point because the guy that becomes <clears throat> the, the, your version of the $6 million man, he just wants to return to service. And you do see that a lot with people who are in the military. You know, They get injured. Or this used to be true. I don't know how true it is these days, but it used to be true. You know, they would they would get a severe injury. They might be amputated below the knee. They would want to get back out there. A surprising number of them would. So the book kind of does. You do have a good sense. And this probably is helped by having mm -hmm. Bane as your partners. But you do have a good sense of military culture. You know what what these areas are like. And I, I like that kind of attention to detail because for someone like me who's never going to be inside one of these labs or anywhere near this stuff, it's kind of interesting to get a little taste of what that atmosphere is like. 
Uh, one thing I also like about your story, and $60 million man um, didn't really address this too much, but that prosthetics are very hard in the body. One of the big challenges we have with prosthetics in general, but especially bionics, is people have in science fiction, Star Wars, Star Trek, you know, you have this part of you, you know, you lose your arm, you just put on a new arm, that's it, the body loves it, no rejection, no problems, doesn't wear out, you don't get like like skin sores, you know, it's, it right. goes perfectly well. Whereas exactly. in the reality, like prosthetics wear you out. I remember I knew a guy from college because uh, uh, at STSU, we had a lot of people who were served in the National Guard and such, and he had a prosthetic arm. And, and he said, you know, one of the big problems with that was that he constantly had to, you know, keep an eye on, you know, the, the natural part of his arm because the prosthetic would really wear on it. It'd wear him out, could cause <laughs> problems, he could get an infection, all kinds of things. It's, it's, a, it's a lot messier than I think uh, right. fiction leads us to believe. I wanted to show that part too. Again, I've had a chance because of the programs I was part of to meet and talk to the volunteers and hear things like the advanced uh, prosthetic arm that I talked about earlier has a battery life uh, that runs from 30 to 90 minutes and that's it for the day. And so uh, the person can't use it the entire time. And we want to make we want to come up with better power sources. We want to come up with better ways to handle the heat. But this is partly I wanted to show the adaptation. Partly my uh, my publisher said, oh, you're too nice to your character. You need to be a little bit meaner to him. Show us how hard <laughs> it is. And so Tony Weisskopf, my publisher, uh, gave me a lot of great feedback. And one of the things that she kept saying is, show us, show us, show us. And so I dug back in and I I have a character who was only supposed to be in one scene of the book. And he's a psychiatrist. And he's as injured as anyone else in the rehabilitation, rehabilitation hospital. Um, he has a spinal injury that makes it hard for him to walk. So the very first time the reader meets this character, he's engaged in a wheelchair race with two other patients. The, uh, the head surgeon, the head doctor comes on the ward and our main character, Glenn Shepard is engaged in a wheelchair race and the doctor starts chewing him out. And around the corner at the end of the hall comes the psychiatrist in his wheelchair saying, hey, guys, what are you doing? I'm about to lap you. And that was all the scene was going to be. That was all the character was going to show up. But I realized that, hey, wait a minute. If I'm going to show how hard this is, then I need to take a look at the psychology and the psychiatry and what the what is the person going through? And so the psychiatrist character became much more involved throughout the story and becomes becomes the reader's way of looking into the main character's mind. There is a point where the main character is, where Glenn wakes up from a nightmare and his face is wet and he looks to the side of the bed and there's Dr. Nick, the psychiatrist, holding a squirt gun. And because Glenn had a nightmare, Nick squirted him in the face with water to wake him up and said, it's therapeutic. It's what I'm going to do. But it's just a great way to show it. By the way, um, Dr. Nick is based on a real person. And when I jokingly told him about that scene, he says, yeah, I've done that. So, so, you know, we, we, I, I use some, uh, experts to help me with some of the aspects of the story, including a, uh, uh, a psychiatrist who has worked with terminally ill people, uh, particularly terminally ill kids and says the attitude is exactly the same. Um, and so frustration, I, you know, it wasn't easy. Glenn Shepard is asked, well, how did you cope? And he says, badly. You know, he's asked at another point, well, what hurts? 
the person asking the question is thinking that the answer is going to be, well, but just because he went through a number of uh, extreme exercises and feats of athletic strength, he's going to talk about, well, this hurts, that hurts. And the answer he gives is everything. And the person who asked the question says, well, yeah, you just did. He said, no, everything all the time. And that's exactly what I've heard from the people who do this. But then if you ask them if they would ever second guess themselves and not do this, they said, if you had the choice, if you knew all of this, when you made the choice to volunteer and be part of this program, they say, I'd do it all over again. So in a sense, I also want the story to be a tribute to the volunteers who, who really have put it out there and allowed this field of bionics and advanced prosthetics to develop. You bring up the pain issue when it comes to uh, prosthetics. You know, uh, this, is, this is true of anything, you know, where you mess with the body, even if it's like an organ transplant, right. which is kind of like bionics in a way. Um, yeah. That's just one of the challenges that researchers and people who are trying to make advances in this field are facing. What are some of the other current um, struggles or uh, roadblocks that people in your field are trying to get past? Like, what are the steps we need to get through right now to get to a point where we can have something more like the $6 million man, or even like where you have the guy that has the, the arm that has neurofeedback to make that a more standard thing? Right. So the first thing is that the very first prosthetics, um, all the way back to uh, the crude prosthetic arm with just a hook on the end of it that just opens and closes a hook, is you have no sensory feedback. You have no sensation whatsoever. So you don't know if what you're grabbing is hot, cold. Um, you don't know how much force to put in order to hold it. You pick up a glass and you don't have enough force and the glass just falls right out. So um, so the very first problem is how do you provide uh, touch sensation, force sensation, and provide that as a feedback? Well, there was a research program specifically for that, and it was designed to provide what's called haptic feedback. And the haptic feedback uh, is then how do you give a robotic or a prosthetic arm feedback onto the brain to give it sensation. And that's exactly what they had to do is they had to put an electrode on the part of the brain or tap into the to the nerves of the upper arm uh, and give that type of active feedback. Uh, problem number two is the battery. How do you give it enough power to do everything you want without uh, without running out of battery in the middle of the day? How do you quickly recharge it at night? Are you going to do just like we do with our um, with our older phones and have to plug it into a charger each night? Or is it going to be like a newer phone that can have an inductive charger? You just put it in the same vicinity as the uh, charge. Now, I don't know about anybody else, but if I don't put my phone, actually, if I don't put my watch on the charger just right, it won't charge. Same thing yeah, happens the same with problem. the phone. Right. And, you know, so that's a major challenge right there. Weight is another problem. Uh, if you have a battery that's strong enough, it's probably going to be heavy. Um, I, I address that actually in a way where uh, Glenn tries to swim and he doesn't float anymore. Uh, and it's not so much that everything is too heavy. Uh, he has uh, uh, the prosthetics do give him extra weight, but there's no fat to buoy him up in those parts of the, there's no buoyant part of the prosthetic limb. Uh, so the appearance is another, and that's something that actually goes all the way back to uh, the original book, Cyborg, and to the $6 million man. What happens when uh, our character is out in public for the first time somebody discovers that the, the limb is all wires and gears and servos and, and the like. Then there's, uh, then there's the, the other issues. Um, in the $6 million man, they had it such that in extreme cold or in uh, space conditions, 
his limb would not function. His arms, his arm in particular wouldn't function. Mm. And so how do we then ensure that a bionic is going to be usable in all circumstances? And then there's the big question. How do you get society to accept it? Because we have individuals who will hobble around and allow themselves to have next to no mobility because they don't like the idea of artificial knees or hips and having uh, knee replacement surgery or hip replacement surgery, which would restore their mobility. But they say, I'm scared of having foreign materials in my body. Well, I mean, it's if if a person is scared of that, they're not going to want the invasiveness of the type of advanced prosthetic that we would call bionics because they have to be hooked up to the nerves. They have to, at some point, they have to be hooked up to the brain. And uh, it's scary. And so there's a challenge to society as well. Uh, I've known some people that that had, you know, implants or they had some kind of thing. Um, Some pain patients, you know, when I'm not doing the podcast stuff, I'm a health reporter. And a lot of patients, the physician tried to find uh, opioid alternatives. A popular right. one is a is a spinal stimulator. But the right. problem with the spinal stimulator is if it ha- tends to have a malfunction where um, if there's something wrong with the wiring, you can actually end up shocking the patient. And then you have a situation where you're occasionally getting a shock and you have to get in, but then there's the logistics. How do we get them in? How do we find the time to do this? How do we do this safely? Exactly. There's a lot to it. Yeah, there's a lot of logistics that... Right. Most of us have no, you know, so many people, I wish it was just like Luke Skywalker, you know, in, in, in the movie, off goes the hand, you, you go, you go to your nearest, uh, space station, new hand, you're good. That's not how it works though. I definitely want to back to tank. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> that would be, it looks fun. I, I mean, the, so I'm glad you brought up spinal stimulators because there are a number of. There's a number of treatments that involve electrodes in the brain. Um, a deep brain stimulating electrode for Parkinson's disease, which helps greatly with uh, relief of the tremor and can also be useful for the rigidity, breaking the rigidity that comes with Alzheimer uh, with uh, Parkinson's disease. Um, but it involves sticking an electrode into the brain and then sticking a controller somewhere under the collarbone. There's, uh, there's treatments for other disorders and we're working on, as I talked about earlier, we're working on memory disorders that would involve um, putting an electrode or a series of electrodes into the hippocampus for a stimulation pattern that would help us restore memory. And there is a resistance because a person who says, oh, I'm just starting to get this disease, it's not severe enough to warrant brain surgery. And by the time they might consider that it's time that they're ready to do it, uh, there's always a possibility it's too late. So uh, that's so societal acceptance is going to be a major issue. And by the way, that is one reason why you have a person like me writing a book like that, that shows what some of the possibilities could be and not pulling any punches with the science. And of course, anything to do with, with, you know, research and dramatical research, there are, of course, a lot of regulatory issues get passed, but there are also social issues, especially when it comes to work on something like the brain. I imagine that's a huge ethical quagmire for someone that wants to try to do research in the areas that you have. Uh, it is, and a number of the funding agencies will have what they call LC boards, E-L-S-I, Ethical, Legal, and Social Implications. I think they've added another initial to that, and I'm not sh- sure which would, what that one is right now, but the... Uh, so it is very common for the people who would be involved in that research and in developing these types of treatments to work with an LC board and to work with focus groups and the like, trying to come up with, well, 
what do we, uh, you know, how do we get social buy-in? Uh, at my own institution, we're working on a center for neuroscience and society where we would be going out into the community and working with community focus groups. And we were, our goal is a lot of education when it comes to uh, our brain health, uh, healthy aging, um, handling different uh, neurological disorders, but looking at other issues such as depression, addiction, um, and brain injury and the like, some things that really affect society. And what we are attempting to do is we want to partner with society. We really do. We don't want to be in ivory towers where we come with the, up with an idea and by golly, it's going to work and nobody wants to do it. So uh, there are a lot of societal implications. And it is, it's, for me, it's something I think about all the time, uh, mainly because I teach in a number of uh, courses where our graduate students are learning um, about the ethics. They're learning about how to communicate and interact with society, how to talk about our own research in a way that it just doesn't sound like gibberish to anyone who's not trained in it, uh, which is not an easy thing to, uh, uh, to do. There are times when we use words and phrases that simply don't have an easy-to-understand uh, translation. And... But we as but we as scientists have to figure out how to do it. No, definitely. I think I think also medicine has this problem a lot too, um, where the general public don't have a great literacy for it, or even the people who are covering the people actually know what they're doing, like yourself, so like reporters and such. It's it's hard to translate information to be something usable and uh, feel feel safe or reliable, not scary. Yeah, one of the problems is the accuracy, if the accuracy level is here, the public understanding level is probably here. As you bring this up, you risk reducing the accuracy level. And so that is one of the big challenges. Um, you know, as, as you say, in the uh, 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 healthcare, health education uh, coverage, it's really important that, number one, the people covering it uh, have some understanding, and then the scientists who are providing the expert uh, subject matter expertise need to understand that, okay, if I bring it down a level or two, how much accuracy am I losing? And number one, we have to be comfortable enough with it that we don't lose the, the main point. You know, as we as we make it understandable, we've got to always make sure that we're still conveying the necessary information. Definitely. I think it's interesting you bring up the half million dollar man because that took place in the 1970s. And in a lot of ways, I kind of feel like Americans' attitudes towards health and science has kind of returned to where we were in the 1970s, where it's a bit more, a little bit less optimistic, a bit more pessimistic, um, which it, uh I mean, I guess in some realist term might be useful, but in my in my view, that's kind of a, a net negative because I feel like we live in this age of incredible innovations. You know, we've talked uh -huh. about some here. The world that we possibly could be entering is incredible, but yet we don't seem to have that that insight or that feeling currently. So here, let's do something fun. So uh, you obviously write, haven't written a sci-fi book. You're probably a bit of a sci-fi nerd, right? I am. Okay. So you, so you know, you obviously are probably familiar with the idea of transhumanism. Yes. Um, you've probably seen shows about, you know, like cyberpunk, which is very popular at the moment. What kind of the big sci-fi ideas, um, stuff like, you know, of course, Alex Kurzweil might be pushing. I have, I'm sure I have that name wrong. And uh, what we see in science fiction, how much of that is actually possible, do you think? And how much is just like, that's just never going to happen? So my favorite big sci-fi idea is downloading ourselves into computers. Uh, and it's one I get asked about a lot because one of the essentials is memory. Uh, and if you're going to download yourself into a computer, you want your memory to be intact. Uh, since I study memory, I get asked the question uh, quite frequently. And then we, we move on where we're saying, okay, 
but how much personality is left. The first thing that always comes up in terms of how practical it is, is let's throw out a number of 5 billion neurons. So let's say uh, that the human brain has 5 billion brain cells or neur neurons. There are individuals who have proposed that we build a 5 billion CPU computer and see if it will show human-like intelligence and, 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 uh, and consciousness. Well, the problem is that 5 billion is not enough. It's not enough to have a processor for every neuron, but every neuron in the brain probably has 100 to 1,000 or even more connections on its input and the same number of connections on the output. So 5 billion processors is not enough. Five trillion processors is not enough. Five quadrillion processors might be getting to that point. So then the question is, okay, well, if you want to download yourself into a computer, are you really going to need five quadrillion processors? Well, maybe, maybe not. One of the things that we learn as we study is that brain cells are actually multipurpose. Uh, Originally, it was thought by neuroscientists that one memory, one brain cell. Therefore, as long as you had 5 billion brain cells, you could have 5 billion memories. It's not really the case. Um, one brain cell doesn't really hold one memory. First part is it might not be a memory cell at all. In fact, we have a lot of difficulty figuring out oh, which cells are actually the the memory cells, because this function turns out to be distributed. It's spread out across a lot of cells. There's a lot of repetition. Uh, there's a lot of redundancy. Uh, so the it may not take five quadrillion uh, processors to store the pattern of a human brain, or maybe it'll take more. So in terms of that idea, uh, the matrix idea, or um, the storing yourself, your all of your personality uh, on a computer, or uploading yourself into a video game or computer game, it was, um, that one's probably not so practical. But things like um, uh, Total Recall, where you would have the potential to um, to play a memory as if and to experience something as if it were a memory, although it wasn't your memory. Uh, I think some things like that start to become practical as we understand more about it. So you'll see I'm 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 concentrating on memory a lot. Uh, but as far as the prosthetics, the bionics idea, um, there's a few physics breakthroughs we need for power, but the uh, biological and electronics uh, knowledge is here now, so I see that one as being fairly um, as being fairly practical. Are you a believer then in like things like uh, AGI, or do you think that's like something? Because I f I think what I see with um, GBT and so many so many similar projects with LLMs, it's like it feels like to me that we could be near something that could at least from the outside be in similitude to uh, uh, thinking intelligence. But that, that then you have to ask the question though, like though you can make something appear as if it has an intelligence or on the outside has all the the apparatus, you know, the, the uh, characteristics, but that's not the same as like the internal life of a person. So I, I could so I could see what you're what you're saying is like there there are certain things we can do, but trying to actually recreate a person like, you know, me or you not not like looking at the guy that kind of looks like you, but actually you. That's that's a whole nother ballgame. So uh, AI, we're we're not really there yet. Let's in in fact, the stage we're at right now, calling it artificial intelligence is probably an accurate label because what we really want is a synthesized intelligence or a synthetic intelligence. Um so the a computer program that can think and act like a human does and has all of the um, 
being able to rationalize, being able to generalize, being able to create its own motivations and act on them. We're so far away from that. So in terms of current day AI, chat GPT and Midjourney and Dolly and a number of the other AI art, they're still just massive lookup tables. The bigger you make the lookup table and the better you make the engine for breaking down the natural language into the terms that look it up, the neater it looks. And it tends to look more and more like the uh, like an intelligence. There's we we talk a lot in and it's very common in science fiction to talk about the Turing test. The Turing test was simply uh, the point in which a person sitting at a keyboard and talking to somebody at a remote without seeing that person would have a difficulty determining whether they're talking to a machine or talking to a person. And with ChatGPT and a number of the other uh, open AI and AI efforts, we are getting to the point where the Turing test, as written, as described, could be passed by an AI. The reason is because when humans communicate, they don't do it well. And you can always trip up the AI by asking for specific knowledge that has to be based on experience rather than simply looking it up in a, uh, in a reference memory. And so I think we're far away from that type of AI. On the other hand, one of the things I see in our future is being able to use brain-computer interfaces to augment ourselves uh, at the point where we can, where we can start uh, storing and um, recalling certain memory items at the point where we can look at our generalized brain function i'm not certain as a as a neuroscientist i am not certain that it's possible to overclock our brains but if it turns out to be possible to overclock the human brain then that's another way of augmenting our own intelligence um i i hope for a future in which we use the technology to improve ourselves um i'm not afraid of ai at this point i don't uh, in terms of the idea, uh, Ray Kurzweil comes up with the idea that there is a singularity beyond which uh, the artificial intelligences or the cyborgs or the augmented humans will not be distinguishable at all. We won't recognize them as being human. I don't actually believe in the singularity in that form because there's always going to be continuity. I, I don't think we'll get unrecognizable and still be human. Um, I think there's still going to be the element of humanity. That That is really interesting because, you know, it's kind of funny. Ray Kurzweil has been saying we're 10 years away from uh, living forever. He said that like 30 years ago. So uh, but, I well, mean, We said I... that about bionics. Bionics were only 20 years away. And we said that for 40 years, 50 years. Um and the funny part is when the uh, when the neuroscientists themselves said it's only five years away and started showing us that it was truly only five years away. But yeah, it's it's a constant prediction. And and part of the prediction is an exponential growth and the idea that when we hit an exponential growth, um, the change will be so fast we can't keep up with the change. Um I think it may be possible. I'm not, I don't think it's likely because uh, every element of change is a change of the society itself, not just the organism, but the society. I know a, a big facet of science fiction. They love to, um, when they talk about stuff like uh, Ray Kurzweil, like stuff, you know, we're going to live forever. We're going to become one with the machine. Um, we'll, we'll, we will turn into, you know, we will go from people into programs. Um, I, from listening to a po different podcast you did, you said that you taught Sunday school to four, a 
some four-year-olds. Four-year-olds, yes. Yeah, so just does that play some view in your feelings about this stuff? You know, because there does seem to be a real strong connection between these really big ideas and what they might mean. Kurzweil is uh, agnostic in his religious beliefs, and so he, you know, he just kind of essentially, and I know I'm, I'm, over summarizing this, basically, you know, we're we're meat bags. We're we're basically machines right. ourselves, you know. So it's just like going from one machine to the other. But you, being a more religious person, do you have a different view on that? I mean, if if we really could upload our consciousnesses, is that really us? Is there like a, a soul? Do you That's, ever think about that kind of stuff? It's kind of like I do, and it's fascinating. I do, and it's fascinating, and it's the sort of thing for. Um, for a Friday evening conversation, you know, it really is. Um, uh, as a person with religious background, uh, I tend toward an optimism. And so I think that if there's anything that you and the viewers will take from this is that I'm an optimistic fellow, uh, especially when it comes to the technology, when it comes to the research, and when it comes to the to human future. And... So I'm also not a fan of dystopian science fiction either. Uh, everything's bad. Everything's going to decay. Um, I have played in zombie apocalypse fiction, um, and the person who created that universe wanted it to be ultimately upbeat. You know, humans will survive. And I've played in some other fields. I... <laughs> Apparently, I have now a little bit of a reputation in that for an anthology of stories that were supposed to be somewhat lighthearted. I wrote one that the editor says, oh my goodness, that's dark. I go, I'm sorry. And then for an anthology that was supposed to be a little more darker in tone, the editor comes back and says, oh, that is funny. And that is lighthearted. So I, I, I may be a person who takes a contrarian view. And, uh, but all in all, I think it's hopeful. I have hope for the human race. And one of the reasons I do what I do is because I'm trying to improve quality of life. And I'm trying to come up with uh, inventions, developments, treatments, and science that will be beneficial. No, definitely. I think the engine of innovation, I think the the technologies that are happening, I think those are really the big positives of our society in general, our generation right now. It's hard to feel a lot of hope, you know, maybe in the world sphere of news or politics. It's like maybe these wonderful people who are working on innovations, maybe they will but they will solve these problems for us. That's it seems like more and more these days it's kind of my thinking on these things. It's like Oh, you know, come on, come on, scientists, invent, invent the thing that'll solve all our problems. You know, we'll just wish it away. But that's probably a little bit upbeat on my part. Well, I'm also a firm believer in the space program because I, I, I think we risk having too many eggs in the same basket. I'd like to see us be able to have viable space colonies. And I work with a group of mixed engineer scientists, uh, science fiction writers, uh, communicators who are looking at some of those issues and proposing some solutions. And so it then, and I think it comes back to uh, those of us who are in that community who are science fiction writers to make it hopeful and to, to have people believe with us that it can be done. And I, I have a, I have an author friend who believes that all human consciousness is actually uh, some form of a quantum-based uh, uh, shared, uh, you know, a shared quantum uh, connectedness. And so his, you know, one tenet of that is you really have to believe in what you're doing and you have to get other people to believe in it too. And that in some way we do uh, affect each other, we do influence each other. Now... I don't 100% agree with him. He has come up with a number of examples that he uses from neuroscience and says, you can't explain that. It has to be quantum. And I look at him, I say, it's biochemistry. It's basic physiology and pharmacology. You can't use that example. 
here's a better one. And, you know, and we and we have talked about this. We're going to have a, a panel later this summer where the two of us are going to get up in front of a public audience and we're going to we're going to debate it. And he's going to take one side. I'm going to take the other side. And ultimately, I have to say, I don't know, frankly, and you're probably right. And how do we go on from here? No, I, but we, we need both types of people. We need, because we need people who are more realistic. We need people who are like really out there. You know, some people have that crisis of Ray Kurzweil because it's like, well, he has made some incredible innovations in, in actual like invention. Right. But in many ways, his big, his, the big thing about Ray is like, he's always pushing the horizon of what that might be. Sure. And you need those type of people. We also need people like you who are actually like, okay, but how are you actually going to do that? <laughs> right. Here's and, how you, you, you mechanically, like, what are the steps you need to take? And we need people like both of you, I think. And it's a long, hard slog. Um, for my own career, it's been 40 years. Uh, getting from the, I want to do this, to, oh, wow, it's actually being done. And, and an awful lot of people put in the work to do it. But, yeah, I mean... But think of the visionary who came up with the idea when Martin Caden wrote Cyborg, it was clearly science fiction in that none of that existed. And I'm not the only person in this field who says, I watched Six Million Dollar Man and decided I wanted to do this stuff. And uh, a there are other there are many examples from the original Star Trek. And the from the flip phone. Uh, communicator to the communicator pin, which is not a whole lot dif different. I mean, if you think of the people who had the little pin on their shirt and they could talk to somebody who knows how far away, well, most of us, uh, when we're out and about on our own, have something in our ear that we don't even have to touch in order to, we don't have to pull the phone out of our pocket and we can talk to it. Or you walk into a grocery store and as you step up to the doors, the doors go whoosh. And they had that on Star Trek. But what they had is they had two prop guys behind the behind the scenes pulling ropes to get the doors to open quickly. And I remember reading a story that some hospital uh, construction and design company had written to the show, how do you get your doors to open that quickly? We need <laughs> them to open quickly for our emergency room. And they had to say, it's the prop guys. Well, then somebody sat down and said, how do I create the sensors and how do I create the motors to cause doors to wish open just that fast? And so the dreamers and the um, the prophets, if you will, uh, good, bad, or ugly, uh, we, we need them because that's what drives... Uh, the people doing the research to actually uh, push it one step further. Definitely, totally agree. Okay, so here's a here's a kind of a fun little thing to end on. So, what current TV shows or movies are that you are interested in that you think showcase the idea of bionics and cyberism really well? It does not have to be a sci-fi show it could be reality tv it could be a documentary it could be whatever what are the kind of things you think are really interesting that are able to showcase some of these ideas or interests that you have oh wow that's that's really hard to say because one of the problems is when i am really working hard on writing whether it is my scientific uh, professional and i have a grant proposal to write, or if I'm working on uh, hopefully the sequel uh, to The Moon in the Desert, I don't watch a lot of TV. And currently in my reading, I'm not reading hard science fiction because I'm trying not to, I don't want to pick up somebody else's idea and use it accidentally. Yeah. So I, however, uh, am a big fan of The Expanse. Yeah, I love and that show. And I liked it because I saw from the very start several very, very real physiology examples. The, the belters were having problems uh, with gravity. Uh, growing up in, in low gravity, they were having problems with low oxygen 
And I go, yes, yes, yes. Oh, and by the way, the fact that Ceres Station was humid and dripping with water all the time, condensation. And I go, yes, this is so accurate. Um, there were there are many things about it that I really, really liked. Uh, I do appreciate when the uh, when the science is really good. The, you know, every once in a while you'll see, okay, so here's, so here is a great example. The Avengers movies. Okay. Rhodey is in an exoskeleton from the waist down because of the back injury in, um, Captain America Civil War. I think that is real. I think that's practical. And I used something like that in my story. Um, I'm actually inspired. The The concept for me came from a, uh, um, from an Anne McCaffrey book, uh, the, uh, uh, the ship who, the ship who searched, I believe it was. And there was a doctor who had been, uh, crippled that eventually you see him in an exoskeleton at the end. And you, and I saw that in, uh, uh, in the Avengers and, uh, end game, uh, and, the uh, and the, um, um, ah, infinity war. So, and I, and here comes Rhodey and I go, yeah, okay. We have acknowledged the fact that he had a spinal injury. We've used advanced technology. We've used, uh, you know, uh, Tony Stark's Iron Man suit to give him his mobility back. And I just thought that was absolutely fantastic. So that's a good example of, of showcasing the sort of thing that you would get with bionics. Um, and, and I think the Winter Soldier, it's a little bit there, uh, a little bit, you know, over the top. But uh, there's some other things like that. But I do think right now, I do enjoy science fiction. I do watch a fair amount. Um, when I, uh, you know, when, when, when I'm not in that, okay, I got to write, I got to write. I'm putting this off too long. I've spent too long on Facebook and Twitter, and now I need to stop doing that. I got to write. Well, then the, the, the TV watching is a little, uh, is a little slow to come along. Yeah, I I struggle with procrastination and being lazy, so I probably see way too much TV uh, and other entertainment as is. <laughs> okay, so here's here's my dark horse suggestion. This I was thinking about, like, what was the show I thought? I, I want to keep this interesting. I thought really kind of showcased the the very physical logistics and the ideas that make Biox possible. And so I decided this is my mom's favorite show. And that's how I know it exists. The Wizard of Paws. Have you heard of this? Have you heard of this program? I've heard of it. I haven't seen anything about it. I've heard the name. Yes, Wizard of Paws, which is a it's a small TV show on BYU. I think they're the ones that that host it. It's basically it's just this guy that makes prosthetics for animals. He travels the country. He mostly right. makes them for dogs. But what I love about, I mean, it, it's it's you know it's a small show on a Christian cable channel so it's you know it's it's very um cheesy but putting that aside it does really well though because he goes into how you make this and all the concerns you have when you're making prosthetics how it has to wear on the body how you have to shape it how you have to make sure that the prosthetic you're making isn't going to hurt the other parts you know how do you do it so it adapts not just to fit them but like maybe one of their back legs is looking like it might get hurt so how do you get prepared there's like it's like really complicated this guy is crazy smart he and it's and it makes you go like wow you know this this is like really complicated stuff this it's it's incredible because it's just like just to like help some pug that's missing its two back legs it, right. it takes someone who almost has like has a, a a medical doctor or a high tech engineer's knowledge basis to do it so that's my pick it does and actually um, as you described it that sounds absolutely fantastic. And I have seen a little bit of the type of work that is done for, um, for pets and a veterinarian that I work with has said, of course, once, um, once your pet has a name, money's no object, <laughs> we will do, <laughs> That's uh, we true. will do anything yeah. for them. And it's true. I had a dog with knee injuries and 
we went through the reconstructive therapy and the reconstructive surgery um, for the animal to have better quality of life. And we go through that. And I've talked with a prosthetic fitter, a person who fits prosthetics, and we have uh, we have discussed at length the pressure problems and the and here's a here's a problem that people probably don't think of. If you have a prosthetic arm fitted, you don't want to be like this. You want them to be exactly level. And if you're dealing with a leg, the fitting process, you've just said it already. You don't want one to be longer than the other. You don't want it to be shorter than the other. How do you do with that? How do you uh, set it up? My my mother had uh, knee replacement surgery, and after the surgery, one of the legs is shorter than the other. And so it causes her pain and difficulty. This is the sort of thing. And as you say, if it's being showcased in that show, then that is great because, again, we as scientists and as doctors need society to understand what we're doing and to support us. And the best way we can do that is to be honest and to show them as much of it as we possibly can. Amen. I agree. Thank you so much for coming on the show, uh, Dr. Hampson. I greatly appreciate it. The new book is Moon in the Desert. Here, I'll, there it is, right there. <laughs> excellent, excellent cover. I really like that. Um, oh, I do too. When the uh, uh, when the publisher showed me the art, I said, "Oh, wow, that's absolutely perfect." No, it looks good. Looks good. Yeah. Where can people find you uh, when you're not uh, publishing books? Uh, what do you? What's your Twitter or how you like people to contact you or look you up? Well, the easiest way to find me, um, uh, my Twitter is um, thingy in brainy, uh, T H I N G Y in B R A I N Y. It's a joke. We kept talking about uh, our implants would be a thingy in the brainy. Uh, oh, so that's my Twitter. Okay. Uh, I'm at Rob Hampson on uh, on Facebook, and I have a website. Um, uh, HTTP colon slash slash rehampson.com. And uh, uh, it's got to be the HTTP. It's not uh, secured. My uh, uh, The program I used to put it together is a little bit dated and didn't have the secure socket. So, But on there, you can find a lot about both my science and my science fiction. All right. Well, hey, thank you so much for coming on the program. This was a fascinating conversation. It's a wonderful book. You guys should all check it out if you like a very well-crafted science fiction that actually has some kind of real-world connection. And if you are into that, a lot of us are. I really appreciate lately media that has attention to detail because it feels like I can get more out of it, you know, better use of my entertainment time. So I highly recommend you guys all check that out. Uh, Continue to follow. Robert Hampson here, and thank you so much for coming on the show. And until next time, listeners, please keep geeking out.